Let me invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 22 this morning. We'll be camping out in Genesis 22. And let me just say real quick, uh, my name is Pastor Patrick. I am the, the newest pastor on staff. And it's, it's really a joy and a privilege for my family and I to get to be here with y'all Lord's Day after Lord's Day. So thanks for the opportunity to be one of your pastors. I'm grateful to be here. So last week, Pastor John was preaching through Matthew chapter 5. And at the very beginning of the text that he preached on, Jesus said these words in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so in that verse, Jesus said he he did not come to abolish or to get rid of the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them in their entirety. He came to fulfill all of the requirements of the law and the prophets. You remember that Pastor John called this the active obedience of Christ. Christ's active obedience, that he actively obeyed every command of the Old Testament. But as Matthew 5.17 tells us, he didn't just come to fulfill the law itself, but the law and the prophets. And when Jesus combines those two phrases together, he's doing something really interesting. What he's really saying, that's shorthand for, I've come to fulfill the entirety of the Old Testament. To put it another way, Christ is the, he's the yes and the amen to every single promise of the Old Testament. Every Old Testament law, every Old Testament story, every event, it's pointing us forward to the Messiah who was to come. You can look at any of the major players in the Old Testament You can study their lives and see how they, in some way, point us forward to Jesus. You can do this with the life of Joseph. You can do this with Noah. You can do it with David, with Solomon, with all these major players that we grew up hearing about in the Old Testament. Every one of them is pointing us forward to Christ. And so, as as Pastor John said at the start of our service, for the next several weeks as we um, journey up towards Christmas, we're going to be looking at some of these Old Testament characters And asking the question, how do these people point us forward to Christ? So we're we're setting aside the sermon series on Matthew and just asking that question, how are these Old Testament patriarch men uh, pointing us forward to Christ? And so this morning, I want to look at Abraham. And I'll be honest, I I had a hard time choosing, okay, which story from Abraham's life are we going to look at? Because Abraham, on on nearly every page, in some way, is pointing us forward to Jesus. But this morning, I want to look at the event towards the end of Abraham's life, where he went up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac to the Lord. So let me read for us. I'm going to read Genesis 22, 1 through 19. I'll read the whole passage, and then we'll walk through it together. So hear now the word of the Lord. Would you take heed how you listen? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, 
stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the knife, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning as we walk through the text together, I want to follow three headings to, to guide our thoughts as we approach the text. First, we're going to look at Abraham's faith. Second, we'll see Isaac's resurrection, and lastly, the sacrificial lamb. So first, Abraham's faith, looking back in verse 1, it begins, after these things. Okay, pause for a second. After what things? I'd argue that this is referring to really the totality of Abraham's life leading up to this moment. Let me spark your memory of, of what some of that entailed, not the whole detail of Abraham's life history, but at least a little bit of the highlights to help you remember who Abraham was. When we first hear him, he's living in this land called Ur, and the Lord speaks to him and tells him to leave the land of his forefathers and to head into a new place that God will show him. And in Genesis 12, it shows us that immediately Abraham obeyed. He did exactly what God had commanded him, and he got up and left with his family to go to the place that God was going to show him. And now you'll notice right off the bat, there's some real similarities between that event in Genesis 12 and what we just read in Genesis 22. In both instances, God told Abraham to get up and go without knowing the destination in mind. And in both instances, Abraham obeyed. And that obedience came at a great sacrifice for him. 
So one day the Lord appears to Abraham in a vision and gives him a promise. This promise we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. This promise from God to Abraham that he would one day be the father of a mighty nation. With so many descendants that they would number the stars in the sky or the sand at the seashore. There's just one problem with this plan. Abraham and his wife Sarah didn't have any kids. And they were, to put it gently, really, really old. Right? They're decades past the points where child rearing is physically possible. But they trust. If the Lord has made this promise, then God will be faithful to keep his promise. And so the years tick by. Abraham and Sarah, they wait and they wait and they wait for the Lord to provide. And then finally... When Abraham is 100 years old, he and Sarah father a son. And it's such a ridiculously funny situation to picture a 100-year-old couple fathering a son that they laugh about it and then name their son in Hebrew, he laughs. They name their son Isaac because it just brings so much joy to their faces to see how the Lord had provided for this promise that he had given And so it's with all this background in mind that we get to Genesis 22. And I hope that being reminded of this much of Abraham's life helps you to realize just what a great sacrifice it was for him to do what God called him to do in Genesis 22. It says again in verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham. We don't like to think about God testing us very often, but he does. In fact, Scripture records for us several times where the Lord tests his people. Now, let me clarify. He does not tempt us into sin, right? James 1 is abundantly clear. God does not tempt anyone, and yet he does provide tests for us. And he tests us not for us to earn our salvation, but rather to encourage our hearts. We'll come back to that idea a bit later. And so God decides he's going to test Abraham. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. As Abraham heard this command, you've got to, you've got to pause and imagine what was he feeling in that moment. Here's this man well into his hundreds who knows that his son Isaac is supposed to be the heir of this promise from God to become the father of a mighty nation. And now God is asking him to go up on a mountain and sacrifice his son. This would have been devastating. This would have been devastating on a hundred different levels for Abraham. But here we see the remarkable trait of Abraham's faith. He does not question God's command. He doesn't try to skirt around God's command and pretend like it doesn't exist. Instead, he obeys. Verse 3 records for us that Abraham rose early in the morning, the very next morning, and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. The very next morning, Abraham obeys what God called him to do. 
Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, of of course Abraham obeyed right away. He heard the very voice of God telling him what to do, right? That, 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 That ought to be easy. If you hear God's voice telling you specifically where you're supposed to go, shouldn't that be easy to obey? Well, Scripture itself tells us no. I mean, think of, think of the account of the prophet Jonah, right? God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to those people. I mean, very audibly telling Jonah, go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He goes to Tarshish, as far away from Nineveh as he could possibly get. Simply hearing God's commands does not automatically result in our obedience. I mean, think about where you and I stand today in the year 2023. You have more access to the Bible than any generation of Christians who've come before you. I mean, if you go back in time just you know, a few decades, maybe even a few hundred years, and, and, and tell people that you have a copy of the Bible that sits in your pocket, they would be astounded They would be shocked to hear how much easy access you and I have to the Bible, to great Bible teachers on YouTube. We have so much access to the Bible. And yet, simply having access to God's word, it does not automatically result in our obedience. I wish that it did. That would make life so much easier. But instead, the way this works is that our obedience to God's word It has to flow out of a heart that's been changed and transformed by the Lord himself. It is the Lord who who changes and transforms our hearts and causes us to want to obey his commands. To paraphrase our Westminster Shorter Catechism, it is the work of God's free grace that works in our hearts to enable us to live unto righteousness, to to live towards obedience in the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit who does that work in the heart of every believer. Okay, so why bring this up? Well, because at this point in Abraham's life, his heart was already being transformed by the Lord. Remember our timeline here, that, that the sacrifice of Isaac comes after God had already made a covenant with Abraham. It comes after the Lord had confirmed to Abraham time and time again, Abraham, I am the God who keeps my promises. And so when we look at Abraham's obedience in this passage, when you notice how quick he was to obey God's commands, friends, this should give us hope. This should give us hope that it really is possible for us to listen and obey the Lord's commands. To say a quick yes when God calls us to go do something. That by God's grace, by the strength of his Holy Spirit, we really can say yes to God. I pray that we as a church would grow in that. That we would grow to be quicker to say yes to all of God's commands. So that when God says go, we would be quick to be willing to go and do whatever God is calling us to do. I'm praying towards that end. I invite you to pray with me we'd be quicker to say yes to God. And so continuing on in our narrative, we see that Abraham saddles up some donkeys and he takes Isaac and two servants with him for the journey. And then verse five, Abraham says something really interesting. He says to the two servants, stay here with the donkey 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, our English translations don't highlight this for us, but in the original Hebrew, what Abraham is literally saying to these servants is, I and the boy, we will go over there. We will go worship, and we will come back to you. We will come back. How can Abraham say that? He knows that he's about to go sacrifice his son to the Lord, and yet he's saying, we will come back. Simply put, I think Abraham just clings to God's promises. Abraham believed that if God could bring him a child when he's 100 years old, he could certainly bring that child back from the dead. In fact, that's how the New Testament understands this narrative. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is the chapter we often call the the hall of faith, it, it describes Abraham's faith in this way. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Did you catch that? According to the author of Hebrews, if Abraham really ended up going through the sacrifice of his son, then God would have brought him back from the dead. And so figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead. This is a real resurrection moment of Isaac. And so that's our second heading, the resurrection of Isaac. Look with me at verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they, both, so they went, both of them, together. Now, this is the point where things are getting real. Again, you've got to imagine what Abraham as a father is feeling in this moment. He must have been terribly saddened by what was about to come. With fear and trepidation, he was trying to obey the Lord. And then in verses 7 through 8, we get a conversation between Abraham and his son, And I think Isaac is kind of going through a mental checklist of everything needed to make a sacrifice in worship to the Lord. So he's thinking, wood, check, it's on my back. Knife, check, dad's got that. Fire, check, dad's got the torch in his other hand. Animal, for the sacrifice. Hey, dad, I think we're missing something. Right, you see, Isaac would have probably had a really robust understanding of what was required to make a sacrificial offering. Isaac would have known that you needed to sacrifice an animal. And that that animal would have been a sacrifice on behalf of his sins, right? Abraham and Isaac certainly knew that they were far from perfect. That they were sinners who fell short of God's requirement of holy living. They knew they were sinners. And they knew that God required them to make an offering to to atone for their sin. to, To cover their sin. Something had to be sacrificed in their place. Isaac also would have known that the best offerings were the first fruits, the very first of your flock. I mean, one of Isaac's great, 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 great uncles was Abel, right? Who brought the first fruits of his flock of sheep to the Lord, and the Lord accepted his offering. And so Isaac looks around and he realizes we don't even have a single sheep, let alone the firstborn of our flock. We're not ready to worship the Lord. 
But then Abraham, in just an incredible act of faith, he responds this way in verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham was just so abundantly sure that the Lord would keep his promises. He knew that the Lord would somehow, in some way, provide what was needed for the offering. This is just an incredible amount of faith we see exemplified in Abraham. And so as verse 9 describes for us, Abraham goes about building an altar, and he begins to put the wood for the fire on top of the altar. I think the tension in this moment was so thick, you could probably cut it with a knife. And yes, that pun was intended. A little levity there. You know, there, there was a book by a pastor back in 1980, a pastor named Eugene Peterson. He wrote a book with what I think might be the best title in all of Christian literature. That book was A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I think what we see from Abraham in Genesis 22 is exactly that. It's a long obedience in the same direction. For three days now, Abraham had been traveling toward Mount Moriah with an unwavering obedience to go where the Lord commanded him to go. And then for hours, he would have led his son up the side of this mountain, continuing to obey the Lord's leading. And then for what probably took him another couple hours, he built this altar in continual obedience to the Lord. And then he continued to obey as he laid his one and only son whom he loved on top of this altar. And he kept on obeying God's commands all the way up to the moment we see in verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. If you were to make this into a movie, this is the moment where the orchestra is at a fever pitch. This is the climax of the movie. But then the grace of God intervenes. Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Oh, praise the Lord for that moment. At that exact second, God intervenes with a miraculous word. The angel of the Lord suddenly breaks through heaven with this booming voice and commands him to put down the knife. What a glorious moment this must have been for Abraham. You can picture, you know, hearing a voice from heaven probably caused him to fall flat on his face. And after the initial shock of, you know, hearing a voice from heaven, Abraham would have heard these words in verse 12. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What a great sigh of relief Abraham must have breathed in that moment. But we need to understand these words correctly. We need to remember that the Lord is omniscient, right? He knows all things. He knows everything. The Psalms tell us that the Lord knows the heart of man better than we know ourselves, and so the Lord didn't need to test Abraham just to kind of check on his faith. That's not what's happening here. Instead, the Lord is testing Abraham for Abraham's own sake. There's a, a, a biblical commentator named John Currid, who's a professor at RTS, who put it this way. In reality, the trial is for Abraham's benefit 
so that he may be reassured of the complete effectiveness of his faith in God. His actions here serve as a testimony to his reverential fear of God. So this test, it really was a gift from God to Abraham to strengthen, to confirm his faith. Friends, I want you to realize that when you're tested, when you're in the midst of some trial in life, what the Lord is doing in that moment, at least part of what he's doing, is strengthening you. He is strengthening your faith and your resolve to follow after the Lord. The Lord uses our trials to to bolster up our faith and to help us to see his mighty hand working in all things. Think of how James put it in James chapter 1. He tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's not our normal reaction, is it? We don't normally face trials and count it all joy. And yet James says that's what we're supposed to do. For when you know, for then you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Ultimately, the tests and the trials that we face, the tests that Abraham faced in Genesis 22, the Lord is using those. The Lord is using those to work together for his glory and for our good. Because it's in those tests that we get to see how the Lord provides. So let's see how the Lord provides for Abraham. This is our third point, the sacrificial lamb. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, hours earlier, Abraham had told his son Isaac, the Lord will provide a lamb for the offering. And here we get to see the moment where the the Lord really miraculously provided for them, provided what was needed for this worship. But I want you to notice the last few words of verse 13. The ram that was offered up for the burnt offering was instead of his son. Friends, what we get here is a glimpse of, of one of the most important doctrines in all of the Bible is the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. That this ram stood as a substitute for Isaac. The shedding of the blood of the ram was meant to cover the multitude of sins that Abraham and Isaac had committed throughout their life. We'll come back to this idea of substitutionary atonement in just a second, but I also want you to notice that it was the Lord who provided the animal. It's not as though Abraham had to go hunting and and tracking down another animal so he could complete the sacrifice. No, the Lord himself provided the animal as like a sitting duck caught in a thicket ready to be sacrificed. That's why Abraham does what he does in verse 14, where he says, he names the, the name of that place, the Lord will provide As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. On that mountain, the Lord provided for himself a way for Abraham's and Isaac's sins to be atoned for. But here's where things get really interesting. If we do some some biblical archaeology together, 
we start to notice some of the deeper significance of this passage. You know, earlier in verse 2, we see that all of these events were taking place on a mountain called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is only mentioned in the Bible in one other passage. And of all places, it's in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, not the kind of place you would just stumble upon. But 2 Chronicles chapter 3 is describing for us King Solomon, king of Israel, building the permanent temple in Jerusalem. Look what it says. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. The temple was built on the very exact spot that Abraham sacrificed Isaac. So you can think of it this way. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac was pointing us forward, at least in one level, to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But we also know, don't we, that the Old Testament sacrificial system is meant to point us forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That all of those bulls and goats and everything that was sacrificed in the temple is just a shadow of Christ's ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Let me quote the author of Hebrews again in Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, while, while the sacrifice of animals brought about one level of purification in the Old Testament, it is only the blood of Christ that brings about true and lasting forgiveness. It's his sacrifice alone that would fully pay the penalty for all who would cling to him by faith. Okay, so that's one connection from Genesis 22 looking forward to Christ. But I want you to notice another. Look back at verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That's what Abraham told Isaac. But then look at what the Lord actually provided in verse 13. It says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Those are two different words in the original Hebrew. The word for lamb signified a smaller animal, one without blemish. The word for ram referred to a much larger animal. So what do we make of the fact that Abraham was expecting a lamb and God provided a ram? What do we make of that? Well, friends, even the ram used for the offering on Mount Moriah, it's simply a shadow of what was to come in Jesus. Fast forward with me in your mind to the Gospel of John. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and announces his arrival. And he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was announcing to everyone that Jesus Christ is the true and better Lamb. Jesus Christ is the lamb that God provided. Jesus is the lamb who would provide forgiveness and reconciliation between us and God. Jesus is the lamb who would die for your sins. Jesus is the one the Lord provided to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation between us as sinners and a holy God. 
God provided the lamb. He did. Now there's even another layer of Genesis 22 that we need to consider. In this story, Abraham is clearly the focal point. Right? Genesis 22, in, in its own context, is meant for us to see Abraham's faith, to be encouraged by it, to pray for that kind of obedience. Just look at what it says in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And then the Lord goes on to repeat all of the covenant promises that were made back in Genesis 15. So Abraham, he's being celebrated, and he should be celebrated for his obedience. We should recognize that. We should be inspired by it. But I want you to notice one more connection to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul picks some of the words and phrases from Genesis 22 in describing God the Father's love for us. It says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son. Do you hear the echoes of Genesis 22? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's a truly, just remarkably beautiful thing that the Father has done for us in sending his Son. Back in Genesis 22, God spared Abraham the heartache of actually having to sacrifice Isaac. But God did not spare himself that same anguish. He willingly sent his Son to die on the cross so that we can know the heights and the depths of God the Father's immeasurable love for his children so that we can know and experience God's love for us, his people. He didn't spare his own son, but willingly sent him to be the lamb of God to come and take away the sins of the world. Friends, I hope you can appreciate that fact this morning. I hope that you can see and just appreciate God the Father's love for you, his children. When you think of Abraham's faithfulness to sacrifice his one and only son, I hope you look at that event and you see God the Father's faithfulness towards you. I hope you can see and appreciate the love that God the Father has for you, his son or his daughter. Do you believe that he's good? Do you believe and trust that God the Father has provided on your behalf a substitute to take away your sins? Do you see his love for you and do you believe it? I hope and I pray that you do. So let's join together and pray and thank God for this magnificent love. Oh Lord, you have been... You've been so good to us. We trust and believe that you have sent your son, your one and only son whom you love to die on our behalf. Lord, we believe that this morning. Help our unbelief. Help us to truly see and cling to the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Amen. Amen.